Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Simply put, the practice of prayer is the practice of relating to God, who imagining who he is, how he's at work in this world and our lives within it, grappling with you know, the questions, who is God, uh, what, what is his existence, and well, what does that mean for me and for you? In the Sermon on the Mount, which runs from Matthew chapter 5 all the way through Matthew chapter 7, but right smack dab in the middle of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us an avenue to do just that. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That prayer that we all just prayed together. Tonight we're beginning our series on that prayer, the Lord's Prayer. A series called and entitled Revolutionary God. And as we begin this series, I have, I have two goals. I have two things tonight that I want to convince you of because I believe that I, if I can convince you of these two things, that it will change your life and change it for the good. The first uh, is very individual in nature. And my hope is that after tonight, that you will pray the Lord's Prayer once each day for at least the rest of this week, if not the rest of this month and semester. My hope is that at least just from starting tomorrow all the way to connect next Wednesday, that you'll say the Lord's Prayer once each day, that you just pick a time and you would stick with it. Whether it be in the morning when you wake up or right before you go to sleep, maybe it's right before breakfast or lunch or dinner, I don't know, but just pick a time and stick with it. That's my first hope. You'll pray the Lord's Prayer once each day. My second hope is more of a communal hope. I hope that you're going to come back next week and the week after that and the week after that. And you'll join us on Wednesday nights at Connect to pray the Lord's Prayer together as, we just, as, Jake, as Jake just let us in just a few minutes ago. And then immerse ourselves in the stories of the Lord's Prayer. And to the relationship with God that Jesus is inviting us through this prayer. Praying the Lord's Prayer may seem small, may seem rote. You know, it's just the same words over and over again, Ben. Why would I do that? It may even seem mundane to you. Listening to a lesson on the Lord's Prayer line by line. We're even going to spend three weeks on the line. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That may seem uh, overly tedious and frankly boring. However, if you haven't heard me say it yet, the best piece of advice I ever got from my campus minister was that Christian spiritual formation, right, like truly centering and informing and shaping your life around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christian spiritual formation does not take place through an ordinary commitment to extraordinary practices, but rather an extraordinary commitment to very ordinary practices. Practices like praying the Lord's Prayer each day and gathering once a week to immerse yourself in its stories. I promise you this, if you commit to praying the Lord's Prayer and immersing yourself in its stories each Wednesday night, it will bring about a revolution of redemption in your relationship with God. 
If you commit to these two practices, it'll actually change your life and change it for the good. It will sharpen our worldviews. It'll tether us to reality as it helps us grapple with and imagine who God really is, right? Because God is ultimate reality, right? If God is the creator of the cosmos, as Christians claim, like if that's a true fact, then he is ultimate reality. And so if we don't have a good grasp of, of the God that we serve, the God that created us, the God that saves us, the God that sustains us each and every day, then we are living in a lie. If we do not understand who God is, then we are living in a lie, and that will have tangible and practical implications on your lives. It'll lead to death and destruction and decay. And so tonight what I want to do is I just want to talk about two things. I want to do two things tonight. First, I want us to look at how does the Lord's Prayer revolutionize the way we view the Christian God of Scripture. Who is the God that Jesus is revealing to us through the Lord's Prayer? And by the way, I'll just go ahead and give you a, a, kind of a, a sneak peek into what we're going to be looking at. I think if, if we take the Lord's Prayer seriously, we're going to see that it shifts us from viewing God as very far off and very distant and remote to seeing God as extremely present and active in our here and now. And so the second thing that I want to do is I want us to see how does that revolution, right? If we shift from viewing God as far off and distant and remote to seeing him as present and active in our here and now, how does that revolution, how does that paradigm shift actually um, change your life? Like, What are the mechanics of how that might change your life? And we're going to end tonight by looking at three lies that I think we live in because of a false view of God. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. I'll have it up on the screen, so don't worry if you don't have one with you, but uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 6 together. But before uh, we jump in to this, let me give a little bit of context. Who is the original audience uh, when Jesus provides the Lord's Prayer? Who's the original audience of the Sermon on the Mount? What kind of people are listening to it? Yes, they're a Jewish people. All right, and as Jewish people, these people are going to know their Old Testament stories well, and that's going to matter in a second, right? Uh, the Jewish uh, culture was an oral tradition, which means they passed down their stories, what we know as the Old Testament, um, by, uh, from generation to generation by telling these stories over and over and over again. And so they knew their Old Testament so well because they heard it around the fires of their grandparents and their grandparents' grandparents. And it passed down from generation to generation. But the people um, in, that were listening to the Sermon on the Mount for the first time were not just Jewish. They were first century Jews. You see, between the end of the story of the Old Testament, which, by the way, happens in the, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is this return from the Babylonian exile. Between that time and the beginning of the New Testament, when Jesus comes onto the scene, is 400 years of seeming silence from God. You see, these Israelites that were living in first century Palestine, where Jesus is speaking, their entire history had been one of oppression from the Roman regime, and before that, oppression from the Babylonian regime, and before that, oppression from the Assyrian regime. After the days of King David and King Solomon, 
when Israel was at its highest point, they split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom had ten tribes, and the southern kingdom had two tribes. The northern kingdom uh, got taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire, and they never returned. Hear that. They never returned. Over half of the Jewish people never returned to their homeland. Later, the southern tribes, the tribe of Judah, is taken into captivity by Babylon. When you hear this, you should think of the stories of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, or if you're like me, you think of Veggie Tales and the Chocolate Bunny Factory. <laughs> they were in exile for 70 years, and the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah share how they returned from exile. And when they thought, when they, when they thought you know, we'd go back and we'd return to Israel, we would return to our homeland, and we would build Israel back up. God's going to act in great ways, and God, we're going to rebuild the temple, and it's going to be just like it was in the days of King Solomon, in the days of King David. The glory of the Lord never returned to the temple. And it's 400 years later, 400 years of seeming silence from God, and that's when Jesus hits the scene, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This, then, is how you should pray. Our theme. Oh, yeah, sorry. And there are three, three different um, groups of people that respond in three different ways to this, right? They see God as far off. They see God as, as distant. They see God as remote, uninvolved in the seemingly mundane lives that they live in first century Jerusalem, in first century Palestine. And people respond in different ways. The first group is the Sadducees. They sell God as far off and distant and remote. They put him on the back burner. And they then compromise their values. And they, they, they see Rome as a source of power. So the people that are oppressing their, their, their uh, religious people, their, their religious, uh, the, the Jews, uh, and their, their very families, they compromise with them and continue to oppress the, the rest of the Israelites. The second group of people we see is the Pharisees, right? And you know the Pharisees if you've read any of the Gospels because the Pharisees have tons of run-ins with Jesus. Instead of looking outward to Rome as their source of power, they looked inward to, towards themselves, right? God is far off. He's distant. He's remote. He's not engaged in the mundane of my existence. And so I'm going to put him on the back burner, and I'm going to look at, look at myself as my source of sustenance and my source of salvation. The third group is the Essenes. The Essenes saw that God was far off and distant or, and remote. And they said, man, society is going to hell in a handbasket. Let's get out while we can. And they cowered away in fear from the rest of the world. So we see this posture of compromise, this posture of self-sufficiency, and this posture of fear. But all of them have this posture of God is far off and distant and remote. And so let's just go ahead and put him on the back burner. That's really loud. See, this idea of seeing God as far off and distant is something that I think we can relate to. Our theme for this year is going to be um, revolution of redemption, right? And, you know, we're going to spend this whole academic year focusing on this great Christian truth, right? That God wants to bring about a revolution of redemption in and through your lives and out on our college campus. And 
And so tonight, what I want to propose is that the greatest threat to this reality is not sexual morality, it is not drunkenness, it is not wealth, it is not status, it is not greed, it is not power. It is not your classmate of a different faith. It is not your atheist, per, atheist professor. And as intimidating as it is, it is not your 8 a.m. class. Rather, I think the greatest threat, the greatest threat to the revolution of redemption that God wants to bring about in and through your lives and out on our college campus is deism. The belief that God is nothing more or less than the man upstairs. And so we keep him up there, distant and far off and remote from the seeming mundane parts of our lives. My least favorite part uh, of being an intern, I was, a, I was a, an apprentice just like Jake and Hannah and Avery are for me. I worked for my campus ministry at Auburn. My least favorite part of being an apprentice um, was, uh, was uh, orientations. I love orientation. I loved meeting every single one of you at orientation this year. I loved it so much. The... Um, Totally my favorite part of this job. The, uh, that's a lot. Uh, but my least favorite part of being a prince was, was orientations. It was called Camp Fort Eagle at Auburn. And uh, we would have to get really dressed up because it was, it was not each campus ministry individually. It was all the campus ministries together under the, the hub of the Campus Ministry Association. And so we'd all like, be at this table at the bottom of the Haley Center, which is like the oldest building on Auburn's campus and the very basement of it. And students would come in hot and sweaty from a day of orientation, and they'd flood in this like cramped space, and we'd kind of be like one of the first tables that they would see, and we'd, we'd kind of jump out in front of them in our nice clothes, so we looked like authority figures, and we'd say, hey, have you filled out an RPC? They would then ask, appropriately so, what's an RPC? And then we'd have to tell them. The charade was up. Well, an RPC is a religious preference card. And the interesting thing would happen when I would say the word religious. I get one of three looks. The first look I would get, you know, we're in the Bible Belt, so enough people, you know, would get their eyes would light up and they'd be excited, right? Some of you had that very, uh, you know, when you saw that we were campus ministry and you met us at orientation, y'all had that very kind of thought. Oh yeah, that's great. I might get involved. The second response I would get, and by and like know this, this was by far the least common response I would get is that people, you know, would, would kind of get their feathers rustled and they would think to, you know, basically their eyes would tell me, how dare you say the word religious around me? They'd have a response of contempt and disdain. But here's the thing. The third response that I got, and by far the most common, I mean like probably 90%, was neither interest or anger, but was rather a response of utter indifference and total apathy. You see, the, the moment I said the word religious to them, I became utterly irrelevant to them. Now, most of these students would say that they were Christian. Most of these students would say that they believed in God. But they certainly didn't think that God was important or consequential to or had any claim on their lives. You see, the look that they gave me said, I'll fill out this form, but I don't really care about God because he doesn't matter. He's far off. He's distant. He's remote. Each year, thousands of college students walk away from the Christian faith on our college campus. Yes, some intentionally with a vendetta against religion. But most do so. Most do so because the God that they envisioned is so distant 
and inconsequential to their lives that they just shed God at the doorstep of their dorm room. In other words, students do not show up to a college campus and then lose their faith. But rather, the college campus exposes a faith that was already non-existent. College students show up, so many, I mean, thousands of college students, thousands of your peers show up with a Christian faith that is so hollow and void that when the pressures of the college campus put their weight on it, it cracks and then crumbles in a matter of seconds. And it's as if it was never there. How do I describe this to you? Maybe then I moved a lot. Uh, our first four years of marriage, we moved to four different states. And each, uh, each move, there, inevitably, there would be a closet. A closet filled with boxes that we had not opened for an entire year. And what would we do with those boxes? What would we do? We'd throw them away. Why? Because they were far off, distant, and remote. They weren't engaged in our lives. And how often does that happen with God? We picture him as just, you know, another box in the closet. We don't need him. And so when we show up to college, we just toss him and move on. And so even though I think we're in very different circumstance than first century Jewish people, I think that when we hear the Lord's Prayer, we hear it with the same posture towards God that they also had. Right? We hear it with the same posture towards God that they also had. He's on the back burner because we don't see him as present and active in our here and now. And so what Jesus is doing in the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is doing right here in chapter 6 of uh, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, is he's filling the Lord's Prayer with hyperlinks, or like QR codes, to stories from the Old Testament, in which God is anything but far off and distant and remote. When he's giving us the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is doing, he's trying to prick our imagination. The God to whom you pray, the God to whom you, with, with whom you grapple with and you relate to. He's, a, he's the kind of God that's revealed in these stories, in your very history. And so for a second, just, just a few minutes, what I want us to do is I want us to imagine that we're a part of the original crowd that is hearing the Lord's Prayer. You and your family have been oppressed by the Roman regime, and the 400 years of seeming silence from God has begun to get under your skin. You think he's far off, you think he's distant, you think he's remote, and you're beginning to decide whether you're going to side with the Essenes or the Sadducees or the Pharisees. Are you going to begin to adopt a posture of compromise or self-sufficiency or fear? You're sitting down at the bottom of the mountain. Jesus is speaking, his voice projecting. You're very interested through chapter 5. It's pretty interesting. This man teaches with authority. Who might he be? But then in chapter 6, what we know is chapter 6, he says, this then is how you should pray. And he begins by saying, our Father in heaven. And immediately your mind is taken back to the Exodus narrative. Specifically, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Because this is the first time that God calls Israel his son. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. 
You see, it isn't just like, oh, isn't it sweet that God's our father? It's not, an, oh, God cares about you. God loves you, and so do I. No. I love the way the New Testament scholar puts it. The very first word of the Lord's Prayer, therefore, by the way, the first word in the Lord's Prayer in, in Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew would all say Father. The, the pronoun would come after. So the very first word of the Lord's Prayer contains with it not just intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity, but hope. And imagine, imagine, right? You are a Jew who's been oppressed by Rome. And the first thing that Jesus says after saying this then is how you should pray is remember the Exodus. Remember a time in your history when you were oppressed, when your ancestors were oppressed just like you are now. And remember the revolution of redemption, the liberation that I brought them. Imagine how that would hit. Imagine how that would hit. And so as your mind is beginning to just mull on these things and you're beginning to make these connections that Jesus wants you to, right, he's just, Jesus is just continuing on. He's just saying the prayer, but right, your mind is in the Exodus, but then Jesus continues on and he says, by the way, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And your mind lurches from the Exodus stories to the days of King David and King Solomon. When God's rule and will were manifest in the kingdom of Israel and all of God's promises for his people were tangibly being brought about by God himself. Your mind is probably thinking of 1 Kings chapter 8. You see, David wanted to build the temple, right? If you know the story of David, he wants to build the temple. But God says, no, I'm, you're going you're gonna to lift Israel up out of obscurity. and You're going to make them a, a strong nation. But your son, your son Solomon, I will let him build the temple. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's built the temple and they're going to consecrate it. And it says, as all the nations, all the nations in 1 Kings chapter 8 flood to the temple. And then it says that the glory of the Lord fills the temple. You imagine God as far off. You imagine him as distant. You imagine him as remote and not caring about the mundane existence of your everyday lives. But then Jesus invites you to imagine a God whose glory fills the temple once again. And you begin to think to yourself, things don't feel that way anymore, do they? Things don't feel that way anymore, do they? So your mind begins to think of all the prophets, the prophets who prophesied that one day, one day God would raise up a Messiah. One day God would raise somebody up in the line of David, the line of the tribe of Judah, who would bring his people back. And prophets like Ezekiel. And your mind might think of Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 through 25. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. Right? Imagine what that would be like to think that. Right? Half of your people, over half your people, 10 of the 12 tribes, never returned from exile. So imagine what these words might mean to you. I will gather them from all around and bring them back to to their own land. I will make them one nation, right? The divided kingdom is one again on the mountains of Israel. They will be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them and they will have all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and they will be careful to keep my decrees. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just as you're beginning to connect these dots, right? Just as the, the hope is beginning to, to well up inside of you and spring Fourth, Jesus gives you whiplash, right? You were in the Exodus and then God is, I mean, then Jesus is making you think of 
First Kings chapter 8 and Ezekiel chapter 37. And now he's about to bring you right back into the middle of the Exodus story. And he says, give us this day our daily bread. What is he referencing? Manna, right? Which, by the way, means what is it? Which I think is interesting. Chicken yeah, Ben, you know, you're wrong on that one. That's okay. Ben Brashear thinks that manna is a chicken mini. So you can debate him with that if you want to. Right? Your, your mind has begun to have whiplash. You were in the Exodus, and then you were going forward, but now you're right back in the middle of the Exodus narrative and the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. You see, in response to his people grumbling, man, didn't we eat better in Egypt? What does God do? For the next 40 years of their existence, every morning they wake up, he provides for them bread. And before your mind can dwell too long back on that story of God's present and active provision, Jesus quickly moves on and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And your mind is a little bit hazy on this one. You're slightly confused, but eventually it begins to hit. Jesus is talking about Leviticus chapter 25, the year of Jubilee. By the way, uh, if you've ever sung the song, These Are the Days of Elijah, this is what you're singing about. Or if you've ever read the Jesus Nazareth proclamation in Luke chapter 4, and he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what he's talking about. Leviticus chapter 25. It's a law that, that was established in Israel, but that Israel never practiced. And that's why this one's hazy. You see, every 50 years, every 50 years, the Israelites were supposed to cancel all debts, all land was supposed to go back to its original owner, and all the Israelites who had indentured themselves into slavery due to their poverty were supposed to be returned to their homeland. <coughs> you see this view of disruptive grace that God is getting them to think about. Do you see how God is saying, by the way, I have amazing and wonderful and drastic implications on your everyday lives? Imagine for a second you're a Sadducee. You're compromising with Rome. You like the Roman regime. And you begin to catch on to not just the implications of this, but the indictment of it all. Jesus is calling you out. And so you can imagine the Sadducee standing over in the corner after this saying, who is this guy? We should kill him. And as you begin, right, let's say you're not a Sadducee, but you're part of that family. You've been oppressed by Rome. And as you begin to wrap your head around the implications of what Jesus is saying, just as you begin to connect the dots as Jesus is taking on this pinball machine whirlwind tour through the Old Testament, he closes out by saying, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The last one was hazy, but this one, this one you knew. And you're taken all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. Your parents and your grandparents told you this story growing up. You, you can picture sitting on your granddad's knee and your grandmother telling you the story of how God created the world and things didn't go right at first. But, but, after that, God promised, God promised that he would send somebody who would crush the head of the serpent. 
Your mind is swirling with all the sin and all the suffering that you face. And you hope, you hope for a day in which it is defeated and in which it is destroyed. That God will act to fulfill his promises. That the revolution of redemption that God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 would actually happen. Imagine, right, you're standing there in this crowd. Jesus is putting your mind through this Old Testament pinball machine, and the God you picture is so distant, so far off, and so remote, but the God that Jesus is inviting you to picture is so present and active in your here and now, and you're confused. You don't understand what he's saying. You see, when Jesus says, this then is how you should pray, he's trying to get us to change the way we think about God. He's trying to create some cognitive dissonance. You think God is this way, but he's actually this way. You don't think that he's present and active. You don't think he's involved. You think he's remote. But I'm telling you, as the very son of God, God himself, I am telling you that I am right here. And I am the Messiah. If you're willing to commit yourself to this prayer, praying it once a day, and then coming back each week to immerse yourselves in the stories that Jesus is inviting you into through it, we are going to come to know the God who has revealed himself through it. The more you commit yourself to this prayer, the more you're going to come to know the God who has revealed himself through it. And this isn't just some nice sentiments. It isn't just some nice platitudes. God's involved isn't that sweet. But Jesus is inviting us into this because he thinks that it's actually going to change our lives. Have you ever lived in a lie before? Simple illustration, but I think it'll help you. Have you ever had less money in your bank account than you realized? Or have you ever showed up to, to, to a restaurant and you thought you had your wallet on you and you didn't? I showed up at Smoothie King earlier last week. I was going to get the best smoothie that they have on their menu, which is a peanut butter power plus with strawberry. It tastes like a PB&J. I encourage you to get it. It was a very stressful day. I think it may have been last Wednesday before our first kick out, you know, our campfire connect. I was going to get this smoothie. I'm driving through, and I order. I order the smoothie, and then what happens? I realize that I don't have my wallet. It's still in my backpack here in my office at the RFC. Have you ever lived in a lie? Have you ever lived in a lie? In other words, theology. Hear this. Theology. The way that we think about God actually matters. If you think that God is far off and distant and remote, your life will look extremely and extraordinarily different than if you think God is present and active in your here and now. So what I want to do the rest of tonight is I just want to unpack three lies that I think we live in because we have bought into this lie about God. This lie that he isn't involved, that he isn't engaged, that he doesn't care about the mundane existence that we live in. The first is the lie of the Sadducees. The lie of the sacred and secular divide. God is far off. God is distant. 
God is remote. And so I can compartmentalize him. I am what you would call a um, picky eater. But I was a particularly picky eater when I was a kid. And because of this, I really, really liked the, uh, you know, like the little school, the, the lunch tray you would get at school, right? And there would be, you know, the, the compartment for the meat. And then there would be two kind of compartments for vegetables. But then, you know, they had that little milk compartment. And it even said milk on it in styrofoam. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? And the reason I love these, right? The reason I love these is because I don't like my food touching, right? Like, I don't want the green bean juice to overflow into my mac and cheese. Like, I, who wants green bean juice in their mac and cheese? It's not, it's not the way God made them. You know what I mean? Because of this, I very much hate casseroles. I, I, I don't think I'll ever understand a casserole. We take what is actually quite good food, you know, like some nice, like, chicken and, and other, other things. And then we decide, we decide that the best thing to do with this, this seemingly delicious food is to take a can of Campbell's cream of chicken or cream of mushroom soup and just absolutely smother it in it. I don't know. Work myself up into a tizzy after this. But here's the thing. How often do our lives look much more like lunch trays than casseroles? We may even got, give God the, the, the meat portion of the lunch tray. Right? He, he gets the biggest portion. But it doesn't touch the rest of our lives. You see, the Christian life should look, sadly, I hate to say this, but the Christian life should look much more like a casserole than a lunch tray. Should it not? We have all the different components of our lives, the ingredients of the casserole, and then, I hate to say this, but what is Christ? He is that cream of chicken soup. <laughs> and what does cream of chicken soup do in a casserole? It touches everything. everything. Should Christ not touch every last nook and cranny of your existence, every last nook and cranny of your life? How often do we live lives that are much more like lunch trays than casseroles? God, we, we give you this portion, but you know, I have this part of my life that is dating. And I will not live by your kingdom ethic in it. I will date like the rest of the world. A world that says, by the way, you know what? You can objectify me and I will objectify you and that's just the way we're going to do things. A world whose dating system leads to a 50% divorce rate and sexual assault on our campus almost each and every day, which is not okay. I'm going to date like the rest of the world. But God, I still gave you the meat portion of my lunch tray. Maybe it's, maybe it's school. God, I'm going to give you the meat portion of my lunch tray, but I'm going to fill up all the other, all the other compartments with school. And I will find my identity in you on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and maybe even Sunday nights. And I might even join a prayer group. But the rest of the week, the rest of the week, my identity is going to be found in nothing more or less than what my last grade was. If I made a 99, it is as if the 99 is written on my forehead. If I made a 60, it is as if it is not just written on my forehead, but my heart as well. I am nothing. 
I am enough. God, you get the, 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 the meat portion of the lunch tray, but school gets the rest. Maybe it's your Friday night. God, you get the meat portion of the lunch tray, but you know what? I get my Friday nights. I have things that I need to achieve. I need to go to party X, Y, and Z, and I need to compromise my, my Christian, quote-unquote, Christian values because, well, you know, I need to make friends. It's the only way I'm going to make friends. I've got to do it. I've got to make friends. I can't be alone in college. Oh, God, it's just one night. It won't spill into the rest. It's a lunch tray. It won't overflow and begin to infiltrate the rest of my life. But slowly and surely it does, doesn't it? The second lie that I think we have to think about, the second lie that I think the Lord, praying the Lord, here this, praying the Lord's prayer will help you combat is the lie of self-sufficiency. This is the lie of the Pharisees. They saw God as far off. They saw God as distant. They saw him as remote, seemingly uncaring about the mundane existence of their ordinary lives. And so, they turn inward on themselves. This lie, I think, is so prevalent and therefore so dangerous in our culture. Right? We live in a world, we live in a society in which autonomy is seen as the highest of virtues. And by the way, this is true on both the cultural left as well as the cultural right. On the cultural left, on the cultural left, it's expressive individualism. You do you. Be yourself. You come to college to find out who you are, don't you? So express yourself. On the cultural right, it is an expressive individualism. It's rugged individualism. I will pull myself up by my own bootstraps. You see, the cultural left and the cultural right aren't that different, are they? You see, they both bought into the same lie. That I am self-sufficient. That I don't need God. You are not enough. God is. So don't buy into the cultural lie. Don't buy into the cultural lie. This is especially true, not just of our culture at large, but particularly on the culture of our college campus, right? Because you are entering a phase of life. You are entering a phase of life in which you are supposed to move from being dependent on your parents to being independent. Now hear me when I say this. I want you to learn how to do your own laundry. I want you to learn how to, how to write a check, okay? I want you to learn how to address an envelope. I want you to learn how to do all those things, right? Rather than trusting your parents to do that for the rest of your lives. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But as someone who cares about your Christian faith, I do not want you to become independent. I don't want you to move from being dependent on your parents to being dependent on yourself because that will crush you. The weight of the world will eventually crush you if you live into that lie. I want you to move from being dependent on your parents to being totally and completely and enraptured and dependent upon God. Because Yahweh, Christ, is the only one who will hold up at the end of the day. Because Yahweh is the only one who is good and great, merciful and mighty both willing and able to act on our behalf. You will fail. But if you're here on Sunday night, God walks 
through the pieces alone. The third lie that I think that the Lord's Prayer, praying it each and every day, coming back each and every Wednesday night to, to immerse yourselves in its stories. The third lie that I think the Lord's Prayer helps us combat is the lie of fear. If you're a freshman, right, there's so much excitement, right, about entering into college. But we're lying to ourselves. You're kidding yourselves if you don't admit that there's also a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear. You don't, you don't know what you're doing. Freshman, I hate to say this, you're, 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 you're dumb, okay? <laughs> because you've never done, you've never done what you're about to do. It's not your fault. College is the weirdest social experiment that has ever been put on, ever. Let's put a bunch of 18-year-olds who have never done this before in the same place and see what happens. It's exciting. It is exciting. But right, it is also extraordinarily intimidating. And maybe some of you are in this place where you are sitting in your dorm room and it takes every last fiber of your existence and being to just get yourself to leave it, to put yourself out there and try to meet somebody new. If you are there, know this, that the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian scriptures is not far off. He is not distant. He is not remote. He is right there in the dorm room with you and he's out of the college campus and he is working, he is working to bring you into a community that will point you to him. Maybe you're a returning student. Let's say you're a junior or, or, or a senior and it's beginning to hit you, it's beginning to hit you that, oh goodness, my college years were not as long as I thought they were. And the weight of being an adult is creeping in. And yet again, it's exciting, but along with that comes great, and I mean great, fear. Where am I going to move? How am I going to do this again? Being a freshman was hard enough. And if that is you, know this. The great truth of the Lord's Prayer and the great testimony of all of Christian Scripture is God is not remote. He is not far off, but he is present and active in your here and now. He is at work in every detail and decision of your life. He has not left you to your own devices. That's the great hope of the Lord's Prayer. That's the great hope that I want to invite you back into each and every week the rest of this semester.